Hey, everybody, thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind-the-scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacherboys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. No matter what the Jehovah's Witnesses say, no matter what the cults say, no matter what people say about annihilation, you burn long enough and that's it, there is a hell that lasts forever. If there's no hell, I'd close my Bible. I would not preach another sermon as long as I live. I would take life easy. I would not go day and night, but I'm convinced from the crown of my head to the sole of my feet that there is a hell. It's a place of darkness, railing and weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place like no other place in all of God's universe, but it is a real place. This would be the most precious thing right now in hell, worth more than all the gold in the world, if someone could have this one bottle of water. Hey everybody, on today's episode of the Preacher Boys Podcast, I am bringing on Chris Date. Chris is a well-known evangelical Christian author, editor, blogger, podcaster, debater, and speaker. Representing a global movement known as Rethinking Hell, he specializes in the area of hell and conditional immortality. As an expert on these topics, Chris has been interviewed in such secular media outlets as the New York Times, National Geographic, and NPR. He's debated no less than the president of the Southern Baptist Convention, Dr. Albert Muller, and has been interviewed for the popular One Minute Apologist video series. He helped to frame the statement on evangelical conditionalism, and he is passionate about making the case for conditionalism while fostering unity among evangelical Christians on this controversial yet very important topic. In just a few short years, Chris has edited and co-authored two books in this area and published three articles in peer-reviewed academic journals. His books are Rethinking Hell, Readings in Evangelical Conditionalism, and A Consuming Passion, Essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward Fudge. And you can look at his articles, Dismissive of Hell, Fearful of Death, Conditional Immortality, and The Apologetic Challenge of Hell, The Hermeneutics of Conditionalism, A Defense of the Interpretive Method of Edward Fudge, and The Righteous for the Unrighteous, Conditional Immortality, and The Substitutionary Death of Jesus. This is a really different episode for the Preacher Boys podcast, but I'm so excited to introduce you guys to Chris Date. Let's get into the episode. Welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. I'm so excited to have someone on who I've been listening to for quite a while now. His name is Chris Date, and he runs a, uh, I guess I could say ministry website podcast uh, called Rethinking Hell, and uh, really... Uh, shook me the first time I found it because I was raised on a very specific depiction of hell, which I played in the intro for you guys. Uh, you know, hellfire, brimstone, bottomless pit, uh, eternal damnation. Uh, and so it was really interesting to hear a position like Chris's. And I'm going to let him explain it in just a second here. 
but I, I just want to start off by saying this is a little bit of a different episode. So if you're listening to the show and you're not necessarily religious, definitely still listen to the episode. I think it'll be uh, at least an interesting conversation. And if you are religious, don't allow uh, any disagreements you may have to stop you from hearing the conversation and you know taking it to heart. I don't know where I stand on this. I'm not bringing Chris on because I necessarily am completely sold on everything that I've heard him talk about, but I do believe he's studied it. He's coming at it from, I mean, a lot of research and um, experience kind of dissecting this topic. So wherever you are on the spectrum, just please uh, take time to listen to the episode and hear what Chris has to say. Chris, thank you so much for joining me on the show. It's my pleasure to be here, and I'm very sorry that you've had to suffer through a couple of years of hearing my voice as you've been <laughs> listening to my shows. Yeah, it, it's a really interesting topic, and and just the name Rethinking Hell uh, kind of makes anyone who grew up in a, a church culture that teaches <laughs> eternal conscious torment kind of clench up because we're told not to rethink hell, not to even question hell. Hell, in at least my religious background, we were talking a little bit beforehand, was a driving factor for most everything that we did. Um, you know, if we were going to go on a bus route and pick up kids from the inner city, it was because, you know, we don't want them to go to hell. If we were going to walk the aisle and make a decision, it's because it was our life could be in hell. It was fire insurance. It was all the terms that you hear um, spoken when it comes to making a decision. And um, I, I know there's some people who maybe listen to this who don't know that there's another view of hell than uh, eternal conscious torment. Uh, so can you kind of explain maybe the traditional view of hell as we know it and what you would describe your position on, you know, the final judgment or what happens to us when we die? Well, sure, but let me let me say two things first before I do. Firstly, um, the title uh, of the ministry, Rethinking Hell, isn't really meant to evoke the concept of changing your mind about hell. It's more, you know, we as Christians, whether we grew up in the faith or whether we were atheists and came into the faith as adults, as was the case with me, either way, we typically um, are, uh, we get our view of hell um, through tradition and because of peer pressure and because of what we're told, um, very often people aren't able to articulate um, not just what they believe about hell, but why. Um, mm -hmm. You know, it's it's very common for somebody who is challenged on the traditional view of hell to be like, oh, I'm sure I can crack open my Bible and find a billion places that support the doctrine of eternal torment. And then lo and behold, oh, wow, there's much, it's much more difficult than that. Um, so all we're all we're trying to communicate by the idea of rethinking hell is study the topic. Don't just parrot what you've been told and what you already believe, but study the scriptures, have a Berean spirit, and um, and, and try to understand what the Bible says. And even if you still believe in the traditional view when you're done, the, the doctrine of eternal torment, at least you'll have uh, an idea of why you hold to it, and you'll be able to at least converse with people who hold to um, other views. So that's the reasoning behind rethinking hell. Um, um, the other thing I wanted to mention just as to preface my answer is that when we talk about hell, um, we're not actually talking about what happens when you die. This is, this is an unfortunate artifact of the way that the King James translators chose to translate um, two different concepts um, that, uh, as if they were the same. Um, I said concepts because it's more than just two words. But uh, but there are a small number of handful a small handful of words. So for example, in the in the um, Hebrew Old Testament, 
you've got the word Sheol and in or Sheol is how we English speakers tend to say it. And in the New Testament, you've got Hades or Hades is what the, is the way the Greek puts it. And that's one concept. And then there's the concept of Gehenna um, or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. And there's the Lake of Fire from the book of Revelation. And that's another concept. But the King James translations uh, translation just sort of collapsed that all into a single concept called hell. And so we have this... Um, we, we, we have this sort of tradition that we've carried with us that hell is something that begins when you die and continues for eternity. But in reality, the, those first two words that I mentioned, Sheol and Hades, Sheol, Sheol and Hades, those refer to what theologians call the intermediate state, the place where uh, you go when you die and where you're awaiting resurrection. The other words that I mentioned, Gehenna and the Lake of Fire, those refer to the eternal state, the final state, which happens after resurrection um, when the wicked stand before judgment and are sentenced to their, um, to their final fate. So I'm not really interested in um, talking about what happens when you die, um, I'm willing to go there if you want, but what I'm really right. interested in as somebody who studies the topic of hell is what's going to happen after those who go to Hades are resurrected for final judgment. Right. And fair enough me. before I, yeah, that that's fair enough. Um, and excuse me, I, I just, we just talked about King James <laughs> translations. So I defaulted into using the word hell, but um, I, I, I would, I think it would be safe to say from everything I've listened to, we'd agree on what happens after you die, but it would be after that being judgment, what is that? What happens right, exactly. when when death and the King James translate death and hell are cast into the lake of fire? What what right. what happens at that moment? So, what do you believe happens at that point? Well, well, I, I want to do what you originally asked me to do, which is to um, flesh out the traditional view a little bit, because when we hear the phrase eternal torment or eternal conscious punishment, we tend to think of it as only having to do with ongoing suffering, but that's only part of the story. Um, you see, all Christians ever since the first century, um, and, and this is something that we have inherited from the Jewish people and, and what their what beliefs they had reflected in the Old Testament and in the intertestamental literature, we all believe, all Christians, that the day is coming where everybody who has died um, is going to be resurrected. And resurrection is literally coming back to physical life, all right? So the dead, the body that was buried and you know decomposed into uh, dust is reconstituted and the person comes back to life. And um, what the other thing that all Christians agree on is that when the saved, those who die with their having placed their faith in Christ, when they are raised from the dead in the way that I just described, they will be made immortal. Not, I'm not talking about their soul here. I'm talking about their bodies. They will be made Im bodily immortal. Their bodies will be made immortal. Um, and here's where the doctrine of eternal torment gets um, the rest of the flesh that I mentioned a moment ago when I said flesh it out. The, according to the doctrine of eternal torment, stretching as far back as Tatian and Athenagoras in the second century, the, bodies of, the resurrected bodies of the wicked will also be made immortal so they can live physically in hell for eternity. So that's what I want to focus here on when I contrast that view with my view, is that according to this traditional view, everybody who is resurrected is made bodily immortal and will live physically forever. It's just a matter of where they're going to live. Okay. My view, however, the view that, uh, represented by We at Rethinking Hell, and I, and I think this is clearly what scripture teaches. I think it teaches us about as clearly as it does anything else is that immortality and enduring life, as I just described, is something that's only coming to the saved. 
When the saved are raised from the dead on that final day, um, or, or if you're a premillennialist, when they're raised from the dead at the beginning of the millennium, they will be made immortal. They will live embodied for eternity in the glorious presence of God and in the um, joyful community of his people. But the, but the lost, according to scripture, um, will not receive immortality. They will rise from the dead, they will be judged, and they will be sentenced to death. And by death here, I don't mean any sort of code language. It's just what the Bible repeatedly uses the language of death to mean. They'll, they're going to die a second time, and, and their bodies will deteriorate and return to the dust. Now, the one other thing I'll add is that... Um, you know, Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, don't fear men who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Rather, fear God or fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in Gehenna. And the reason I bring this up is because the difference between the first death and the second death isn't that the second death isn't physical. The difference is that the second death is more than that. It's not just the death of the physical, the resurrected physical body. It's also the death and destruction of the soul, which doesn't happen in the first death. And for that reason, the whole person uh, will come to an end as a conscious being. Uh, and for that reason, it's been called uh, at times, historically, annihilationism. Mm. Um, but because the difference between the, the first view, the doctrine of eternal torment, and mine is really about immortality, I prefer the phrase conditional immortality. Because according to eternal torment, God gives immortality indiscriminately, universally to all humankind. But in my view, immortality is only given to those who meet the condition of being saved in Christ. And so I'm here representing the view conditional immortality, sometimes called annihilationism. Okay. So, um, I mean, I can speak for what, what I always heard, you know, growing up and I, and, and it sounds like your position would say, you know, when the Bible talks about the you know eternal life being the gift like that is the gift of salvation it's a it's eternal life it sounds like when you're saying what i always heard growing up was you can have eternal life or eternal death that was that was the way that they always phrased it but the way you're explaining it and when you even think about that you're saying that the gift of life is reserved for those who are following christ whereas death is a singular there's a second death that's a permanent final death there's no eternal suffering there's no um, continued torment after that point because they are they aren't universally gifted with this this eternal life yeah that's right and in fact the way that you said you were told it you either get eternal life or eternal death is actually a very good way to put my view the the, the problem is that those who typically put it that way don't actually believe that the yeah. lost are going to get eternal death they, they think they're going to get eternal life, life too. with pain yeah There's, right or right or, or sometimes they might try to say they are dying forever without ever finally and fully dying, but that's just gobbledygook. Um, <laughs> uh, in my view, you can use the word death to refer to either an event like the second death or to the state of being dead. And so for that reason, I think that the final punishment meted out in hell is indeed everlasting punishment. But what I, where I disagree with the, the believer in eternal torment is as to the nature of that everlasting punishment. The person who believes in eternal torment thinks that thinks the nature of eternal punishment is torment. The Bible says the nature of that punishment is not having life. It's, it's having mm -hmm. your life taken and never having life again. And so that's really the, the, the debate. It's not about the duration of the punishment. It's about the nature of the punishment. Is it life forever in pain or is it dying and never living again? Hmm. 
Yeah, I, I I posted in my in my group for the for the podcast and and asked you know I told them that you were coming on and and said you know if anybody has any questions about um, about this subject and many were sh- kind of like I said shook that there was a conversation like is there another viewpoint and um, you know you mentioned people have the idea they can pick up their Bible point to a, a thousand texts that prove obviously this view of eternal conscious torment and based on the confidence and the amount it's preached about from pulpits you would think that's the case. Um, but why, if it's not so clearly visible in scripture and, and in your position being that, you know, obviously that your view is a very clearly laid out scriptural view, why has this become the mainstream? I was looking at a study that said um, out of independent Baptists, uh, 85% believe in a literal hell. And that actually was up from the study in 2007 saying uh, that 83%. So, how obviously popularity does not mean something's correct because there's been a lot of popular, you know, heresies and, and uh, incorrect ideas about things. But why has this view of eternal conscious torment gripped the church so tightly, um, especially over the last uh, century or so? Yeah, it, it's a long, um, the answer to that question is long. I'll try to answer it as, as briefly as I can. Um, but let me answer it in two parts. One, how it, how the view came about. And then the second one is how it continues to hold the church in such a tight grip. How it came about, if, if you go back to the writings of the earliest church fathers, the earliest Christian writings we have after the New Testament, um, I'm thinking I'm thinking of Clement of Rome, Ignatius of Antioch, the Epistle of Barnabas, the Didache, um, the Shepherd of Hermas. Um, you know, these are all end of the first, beginning of the second century texts, and even as late, even to the second half of the second century with Irenaeus of Lyon. Um, these writers, they all reflect the view that I've just described. They say that, just using the ordinary language of physical life and death, they say that salvation results in everlasting life, damnation is everlasting death. Um, they will say that immortality is something that is given to those who are in Christ, uh, but those who um, uh, are, are lost if they even rise at all, um, they won't be given immortality. But some of these fathers don't even talk about the resurrection of the lost, which is an interesting study in and of itself. Um, so they, they, and they talk about the final fate of the lost being destruction using words that they also use to describe the death of Christ. You know, so, so the earliest church fathers, they, they speak um, very much as conditionalists. But what happens um, throughout the second century uh, AD is that you have a number of converts to Christianity who are coming out of a very Greek, very Platonic um, worldview, which assumes the immortality of the human soul. Um, some of them, like in, Pla- in Platonism, in fact, the soul is not just everlasting into the future, but it's everlasting into the past. The, the, the soul, human souls are eternal, literally, in both directions. Now, when these converts came into uh, Christianity, they abandoned the most obviously unbiblical portions of their uh, of, of the worldview they came out of. Right. So, for example, they they no longer believe that human souls are forever into the past because it's clear from Scripture that God is right. the sole eternal being and created humans. But as you could, you might understand that when you come out of a worldview like that and you begin reading the Scriptures. Um, not being super familiar with the background of the text and with the um, the, the Hebraic nature and, and of, of the concepts spoken about, um, you're going to read the text through 
whatever presuppositions you continue to have. It's sort of like wearing glasses that are shaded a, a particular color. I've, uh, I've asked people if you were born with blue sunglasses on and you continue to wear those sunglasses into adulthood and you didn't know it, and somebody asked you, what color do you see the world? You'd say, what in the world are you talking about? I, it's just the world. But, and it's not until they take those glasses off that they're like, oh, <laughs> I've been looking through a shaded lens. Well, it's the same with the phenomenon I've just been describing. You come into Christianity from this Greek Platonic worldview and you read phrases like eternal punishment and everlasting fire and worm will not die and stuff like this. And, and, you, and you just assume, oh, this is talking about the everlasting life of the human soul. And because human persons are meant to also have bodies, then when the wicked are resurrected, it will not just be their souls that live forever, but also their bodies and so on and so forth. So that's how it arose. And like I said, you can find this in as far as the earliest I can find it is in Tatian and Athenagoras in the second century. And then a couple hundred years later, Augustine, one of the four great fathers of the church, he puts his stamp of approval on eternal torment right. and that sort of takes over. But then the second part of the question is how has it continued to grip the church since then? And the answer to this is uh, uh, tradition, peer pressure, um, popularity, you know, there's a, a whole variety of things. So just take, for example, um, take, for example, my story coming into Christianity. I was not raised in the church. Uh, I was an atheist as far back as I can remember up until I became a Christian when I was 20. And I didn't have exposure to Christian theology. I, I, I wasn't somebody who went to church. And I didn't know anything about Christianity when I became a Christian, except for two things. One, I should believe the Bible. Um, that's kind of, I just, it occurred to me that that's what Christians do is they believe what the Bible says. The other thing I knew is that hell is where the wicked go to suffer forever. You know, so somehow as an atheist with no exposure to Christian theology, with no participation in the church or whatever, I nevertheless knew when I became a Christian that th this is what Christianity teaches. Um, where did I pick it up? From media, from movies and cartoons and jokes and books and all sorts of things like that. So the, so this post-Christian culture or, or fading Christian culture that we have today um, is so inundated with the language and imagery uh, and concept of eternal torment for the wicked in hell that that's just what we are, that's just what we uh, imbibe, you know, and, and we just sort of, we start reading the text through that lens. Add on to that the fact that if you begin to even question that, then you tend to get fired from churches and ministries and you won't, you know, you lose teaching jobs and stuff like that. You lose family members, you get kicked out of churches. Um, you know, so you've got this incredible peer pressure and, and even financial pressure. You could lose a job that allows you to take care of your family. Right. Um, you put all that stuff together uh, with what I just described. And, um, and then you consider your, your most cherished Christian teachers in history. Charles Spurgeon taught eternal hell, you know, or Jonathan Edwards taught eternal hell. And, and mm -hmm. even today, you know, some of my favorite teachers teach eternal hell. Surely they couldn't be wrong about this. You combine all these factors and it just makes for a recipe where it takes an incredible amount of um, diligence to take those glasses off today and look at the scriptures afresh and see if perhaps if I don't read my presuppositions into the text, maybe it's saying something different than I thought. Right. So I, I have to ask this, and you just, you just mentioned this, like the peer pressure, and there are people who lose positions and jobs. And I mean, uh, I mean, I know there's people that I won't name them. I know I've seen you mention people who you greatly respect, uh, people who are, you know, great Bible scholars who will not debate you on this topic because they don't want to even spend time on the argument. They, they, they think that it's not something that's there they they so clearly see their view that they 
they just address this as something like, okay, if they don't see it, they're obviously not reading the scripture. Like when I watch some rebuttals of your work, I just see they either attack that it's an emotional argument for, you know, oh, I wish I could believe this because it's so much easier than what I believe, but the Bible clearly shows what I, what I say. And again, you know, I'm one of those people that defaults into that position because I was raised in it. But I, I, one thing I didn't understand, this is one of the things, even when I was within the independent Baptist movement, I never understood hell being the motivator for hmm. action. Hey, if there's no hell, let's shut down our churches. If there's no hell, let's shut down Crown College. If there's no hell, let's call the missionaries back from the hard fields. If there's no hell, let's forget working extra jobs and giving extra permissions. If there's no hell, stay home on soul winning night. If there's no hell, forget the uh, uh, will of God for your life. If there's no hell, forget modesty and holy living and just do your own thing. But if there is a hell, let's beef up the efforts to win souls for Christ and let's do the will of God and sell out to God. Someone needs us. Probably 2014 or so, I, I was thinking about the topic of hell and I thought in some ways, hell is just like heaven is kind of our prosperity gospel. It's the idea that, you know, do you want to avoid suffering? Do you want to avoid being separated from your family forever? Do you want to avoid, um, you know, the, the undying worms and the gnashing of teeth and all of these things? If so, get your fire insurance and go to heaven. If we're wrong, then you've lost nothing. You just made it. You said your prayer. You're, you're good to go. If we're right, you could lose everything. And this could be an eternal you know, a million years will go by. It'll be like, you just started. And that was the motivator. And when I first started truly, so around 2014, first started truly understanding the gospel, my perspective shifted to, we become Christians because of who God is not to avoid some kind of circumstantial suffering eternal or not. And so why, why does hell feel so wrapped up in the gospel message? And, and why do so many churches treat you like, you're not a like they almost treat you like you're not a Christian when you deny the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. Why are people like me treated so poorly by many Christians? Right. Um, and, and I think the answer to that is largely because they have um, uh, embraced, without knowing it, a false narrative about history. And 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 what that is mm -hmm. is that. Um, Christians since the time of, say, John Stott, um, they have gotten this view of hell that I'm representing from um, cultic groups like occults, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, right. you know, or the, or the Seventh-day Adventists, who um, many Christians consider to be a cult. Um, or, or from really liberal, you know, liberalism and, and, and modernism and right. things like that. And, and that is itself... Um, the result of the modernist, the fundamentalist modernist controversy at the toward the tail end of last uh, the the nineteenth uh, century and the beginning of the twentieth, what happened was um, so many. The, the fundamentalists wanted to say, here are the fundamentals of the faith. And in order to determine that, they looked at what liberals who mm. were clearly rejecting the, the um, authority of the biblical text and things like that, what was that made that marked them you know what was what it was that yeah. um that identified them and one of the things that many liberals denied was the doctrine of eternal torment mm -hmm. so the fundamentalists were like well let's distinguish ourselves from the 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 modernists and the liberals by saying this is one of the things that is a fundamental to the faith mm -hmm. not realizing that there are also many christians who deny uh, the traditional view of hell 
And if there is any doctrine that is absolutely most odious at the moment, it's hell. So just a couple of quick things. Uh, back in March the 9th and the 10th, just a, a month ago, barely, there was in Dallas a conference entitled Rethinking Hell. Actually, the subtitle was The Fifth International Rethinking Hell. <laughs> Looking through the history of the church, I think it's a lot more than the fifth. <laughs> I think this goes right back to half God said. But there, there you see hell, and this is being explicitly organized by those who are pushing for what they call conditionalist arguments for conditional immortality that uh, upon the judgment of God, uh, those who are in Christ are given immortality. Those who are not in Christ simply disappear. Sometimes called annihilationism. Yeah. Uh, very popular amongst some leading British evangelicals in the late 20th century and, uh, and very tempting here. And in fact, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, and others, they actually got their view of hell from Christians before them. A lot of people don't realize this, but in the early half of the 19th century in America, uh, conditional immortality, annihilationism, was very popular amongst conservative Christians, both in America and in Europe. Um, and, but what happened was in, in, a lot of them were kicked out of churches or unfortunately left some voluntarily, and they joined up in a, many of them joined a, a movement known as the Millerite movement. And um, the Millerite movement is what eventually branched out into the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Seventh-day Adventists, the Christadelphians, and other groups. But it was those Christians who, who were conditionalists or annihilationists who joined the Millerite movement that, that influenced the Millerite movement to believe in the view of hell that I have. And that's why all of the offshoots from that movement, including cultic ones like the Jehovah's Witnesses, hold to this view as well. So ironically, one of the reasons why people like me are treated so poorly is because it's assumed that we're heretics, that we got our view of hell from liberals or from heretics, when in reality it was heretics who got this view of hell from Christians. Mm -hmm. um, but so that's that's the reason why is is because it's associated uh, it's guilt by association right it's right. association with liberals and, and and cults. Well, it's funny when I I was talking to someone about doing this interview t today, and I said you know I'm talking to someone who's we're going to be talking about conditionalism versus eternal conscious torment, and he said oh you're getting into Rob Bell territory here, and I was <laughs> like I was like that's a very sweeping generalization. Um, clearly, you don't agree with that, and that clearly you think hell isn't forever and that clearly you think people can get out of hell now i'd be interested if you're willing to say that quite clearly because often when people have asked you that well, you don't say that you just answer with a question or whatever do well, you think people can get out of of of, of hell and, and go back to heaven is that what you're saying i'm simply beginning with when we use eternal yeah or forever is this a category are we talking about the same thing that the biblical writers talked of so like in the hebrew scriptures Olam is the closest word, and Jonah says that he was in the belly of the fish for Olam, which was three days. So I'm just asking, when we take our forever and we impose it, and are, are we bringing an assumption to the scripture that the writers don't have? Okay, so that to me, that, that just sounds like universalism and the fact that, that, that hell isn't forever. That's a basic sort of biblical studies yeah. question. And, when Jesus says eternal punishment... What does he mean, and is there sort of a larger context? Because when he says eternal can, life, can I can I come though, moving beyond the Greek to yeah. to is, if you like, it's to, to me what comes through in the book more is that 
it, you don't like the picture that this would paint of God in the first place. Because uh, I, I do think people associate with like, oh, well, you must believe in like universalism or you must believe that, you know, there, if you believe there's no hell, like, do you believe that there's no wrath? And it's like, no, <laughs> I don't think that's a, an honest. There are people who hold those views and I, and I know you would disagree with those views like I that's would. That's true. Um, in fact, in fact, I would say that universalism has quite a bit in common with the doctrine of eternal torment, because I believe that immortality is only given to those who are saved on the day of judgment. It's conditional upon being saved. Hmm. But like universalists, uh, believers in eternal torment believe that immortality is given indiscriminately by God to all humankind uh, at the resurrection. So uh, universalists and traditionalists make strange bedfellows. Right, right. Um, I'd be, oh, sorry, were you about to say something? No, no, no. I just, I, I want to make sure that eventually I get around to the other part of your question, but you go ahead first. Oh, sorry. Well, actually go ahead, go ahead and jump into that first up. Yeah. So the, the, the use of hell as a, as a motivation to uh, be salvation, to be saved, right. As a, as an evangelistic motivation. Um, so here's where I, in part, don't actually disagree all that terribly much hmm. with the use of hell <laughs> as a motivator. Um, but, but with something of a twist, namely, I don't see the purely the character of God as being the motivating factor um, for conversion to Christ in the New Testament. What I see is the promise of life being the motivating factor. Um, the thief on the cross, for example, he's about to die. And he begs with Jesus to uh, to include him when he comes in his kingdom. He's he doesn't want death to be the end of the story. Paul in First Corinthians fifteen says death will be the last enemy to be destroyed. The author of Hebrews says that Jesus uh, became a human being to destroy the power of death. You know um, th this. Uh, Jesus says, just as the father has life in himself, he's given to the son to have life in himself and he will give it to whomever he wishes. Uh, John six, you know, Jesus says, I will, I will give, you know, to the one who comes to me, I will give eternal life. I, I, I will raise him on the last day. So there's all throughout the Bible um, and in the new Testament, in particular, the motivation to follow God is, uh, isn't the avoidance of suffering, but it's also not purely or exclusively the character of God. It's also the promise that in Christ, life is to be found. And mm -hmm. so I think it actually is legitimate to warn unbelievers that um, that if you don't accept Christ, then when you die, that's going to be, uh, you know, you'll be raised to be judged and then die again, but that'll be it. And you'll never, ever, ever live again. Uh, whereas if you turn to Christ, you can have the, the immortality and everlasting life that you so desperately desire. And a lot of times critics of my view will say, well, they don't desire everlasting life. They hope for extinction after death. No, that's not true. They fear extinction after death. Death is the most enduring and universal human fear. Right. It's what caused the character port, uh, portrayed in the movie 127 Hours to cut his mm -hmm. arm off with a pocket knife to right. avoid dying. It's, it's the whole motivation of horror movies like the Saw series where people will do the most atrocious evils just to keep from dying. Um, and, and think about it this way, why is the, human, the, the transhumanist movement receiving so many millions of dollars from donors all around the world? Because people are pouring that money into efforts to achieve immortality through technology. So when you tell the unbeliever, yes, you expect to die and never live again, 
you're tapping, but you have an opportunity to instead receive life. You're tapping into a fear and a hope that already resonates deeply within them. Um, and, and I think that's, I, I see people in the New Testament doing that, appealing to the mm -hmm. promise of life as a reason to believe. What I don't see them doing very often is, uh, is warning of the suffering that will take place in hell. Right. Um, and the worst imaginable language that is misinterpreted along those lines is actually given to people who claim to be his followers, right? When huh. Jesus warns of um, uh, the eternal punishment by eternal fire in Matthew 25, he's talking to people who are professing to be followers of his. Mm -hmm. You don't see the, the evangelists in the book of Acts, for example, going to unbelievers and telling them about all the suffering they're going to endure in hell. But there is one place in Acts, I don't remember where exactly, we can look it up if you want, but where, uh, the, where the fate of those who will go to hell is mentioned and it's called destruction uh not everlasting life and immortality and pain hmm interesting so so when you you mentioned matthew 25 um and i, I missed the the verse uh, but i i pulled up matthew 25 46 and it's saying um and these will go away into eternal punishment but the righteous into eternal life so he's writing in context to his followers He's well. He's not writing at all. Jesus is being. Oh, no, I'm sorry, but <laughs> sorry, I'm I'm you know, pedantic like that. That's fine. Um, uh, but, you, but you know what I mean. That the 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 scripture specifically speaking to believers in that context. Then, well, I mean, if you look at uh, the, the, in the ESV that I'm looking at, Jesus's words are in red, and um, if you keep scrolling up uh, in my Bible software or, or flipping through the pages backwards. Um, the very last, the first thing you'll come to that aren't Jesus's words are Matthew 25, 4, 3. And look what it says. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them. And then he goes on to this extremely long discourse that goes all through chapter 24 and into chapter 25 and, and, and then ends at the very last verse that you just read from Matthew 25, 46. So he's not, this isn't, you know, this warning of eternal punishment and this promise of eternal life is not being given to people that are um, pagans you know, or, or, or that are um, uh, Jews that are off on the sidelines, sort of with their arms crossed and looking menacingly at Jesus. These are his disciples. Hmm. Um, Je Jesus seems to have spent more time warning his own professing followers about um, the, this fate of hell than he does unbelievers. So, I mean, obviously, um, those who are believers, you know, will spend eternity with life with Christ. So when, when the Bible uses words like eternal or um, I, everybody that I've seen rebut you in some way uses revelations, 14, 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. So when we read words like eternal forever and ever, um, you know, fill in the blank with words that sound indefinite uh, things that seem to evoke an idea of eternity. Um, how do you address those words? How do you, I mean, obviously a lot of it is how the words are chosen to be translated in the version that you're reading and you have to look at the you mentioned the style of writing of, of revelations um so how do you address those passages and and because because i know i can picture a pastor in, in the movement i grew up and say forever means forever how long is forever it's for you know and i've seen the guys with the boards of numbers pointing this is a million years and there's more than that and take a look at this chart my aim is to try to help you think of the length of time in hell one with nine zeros added to it represents one million years. Add three more zeros and it represents a billion years. Add three more zeros and it represents a trillion years. 
but as you can see here, you have one with all of these zeros representing 300 zeros years. After this much time has elapsed in hell, what time is it? Well, let me say this, after this much time has been consumed, there will still not be one speck of hope for a sinner to ever escape hell. He must remain there forever. How do you address those passages like Revelations 14, 11, uh, like Matthew uh, 25, and you look at uh, 46, where it's talking about et eternal punishment. Um, how do you address those passages and, and see uh, this position? Yeah, so actually, I don't think it is a translational issue. I think eternal or everlasting is the is the exactly right translation of the word here in Matthew 25. And, and for that matter, the phrase uh, under the ages of the ages, which is translated forever and ever in the book of Revelation, I think that's talking about forever and ever. So I'm not disputing that the <laughs> eternality of what's going on in these places. Um, in the book of Revelation, um, and just for listeners' sake, because it's a pet peeve of mine, it is the book of Revelation, singular, not plural, but that's okay. Um, the, uh, we'll get to the book of Revelation in a moment, but when it comes to places like Matthew 25, 46, I just say read it at face value. There's, there's, uh, there's nothing translational or tricky here. Um, if the eternal punishment is exclusive of eternal life, in other words, if it's one or the other, not both, then the punishment must be an everlasting punishment that does not include life. Well, what would that eternal punishment be? Death. And, and critically, we don't, even, even Augustine in the fifth century acknowledged this, we don't measure how long capital punishment lasts by measuring how long it takes the criminal to die. We mm -hmm. measure how long capital punishment lasts by how long the person remains dead. Right. If, if, if the punishment of capital punishment consisted in dying, then imagine that somebody is fried to death in the electric chair and then gasps and comes back to life all of a sudden. It's not all that terribly uncommon. It happens. Well, if, if the punishment is dying, they've suffered that punishment, so they better go free. Right. Well, no, mm -hmm. we kill them again because they haven't actually um, borne their punishment, which is to remain dead. So the difference, the difference between my view, which is, I think, the biblical view, and the reading of this verse by believers in eternal torment, the difference isn't about duration. We both agree that both of these fates, life and punishment, are equally everlasting. The difference is the nature. Um, mm. The believer in eternal torment believes that life is coming to both parties. The everlasting right. punishment is everlasting torment in immortal bodies living physically forever in hell. Whereas in my view, that punishment is the privation of life. It's never living again after they are killed. Now, Revelation is a bit of a different beast because there the, the, the language of eternality isn't applied to um, something as ambiguous as punishment or, uh, or even to something more specific uh, like death. Right? The, the language of uh, eternality is applied to torment, both in Revelation chapter 14 mm -hmm. and Revelation 20. Um, and so for these texts, the, the critical thing to keep in mind is the genre of the literature of the book of Revelation. Um, you see, the, the book of Revelation it does not record a vision of the future that John saw as if a camera in the future recorded it 
And then the recording was sent back in time to John who plugged it into a Blu-ray player or something and watched it on a TV. That's not the way it works. The kind of vision John saw is very much the same kind of vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw with the statue of the different parts or the vision that Daniel saw with the different beasts yeah. or the vision that Pharaoh saw back in Genesis 40 or 41 where the seven healthy cows come up out of the Nile and then the seven right. sickly cows come up out of the Nile. In these kinds of visions recorded all throughout scripture, the way the future is foreseen is by means of symbols, apocalyptic, uh, vivid symbols. Now, that doesn't mean that we can dismiss the book of Revelation and say, you know, just ignore it. And very often believers in eternal torment accuse people like me of doing just that when that's not what we're doing. What we're saying is the genre of this literature means that we have to exercise extreme care and very sound hermeneutical principles when interpreting the text. One of those important principles in this genre in particular is to look at how the symbols used in one place are used elsewhere in the same genre and, and even within the same book or vision itself. And as it turns out, we can apply that very principle to Revelation chapter 14. So in verses 9 through 11, there are at least three symbols that John's men John mentions. There's drinking the wine of God's wrath, that's in verse 10, and um, drinking the cup of or sorry, yeah, the, the cup of God's anger or the, or the wine of God's wrath. There's being tormented with fire and sulfur. And then in verse 11, there's smoke rising forever. And what a lot of people don't seem to realize is that all three of those symbols are used in this very book later in John's vision, specifically in Revelation chapters 18 and uh, 19. So um, all throughout chapter 18, this this um, harlot called Mystery Babylon is riding, she, she, she's this vampiric drug, blood drunk prostitute riding on the back of a seven headed, 10 horned, fearsome beast. Nobody takes this literally, or at least nobody that I know. Um, and it's not meant to be, like I said, it's, it's one of these apocalyptic symbols um, that we see all throughout scripture. Um, and she is made to drink of God's wrath. Um, specifically in verse six, the church is told to pay her back as she herself has paid back others. Repay her double for her deeds, mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed. So there's that first symbol of drinking from a cup. Um, she is said to, uh, to be tormented in verse seven. Um, verse 10 says people will stand far off in fear of her torment. Um, the smoke of her burning is mentioned in verse nine. So you, there you've got burning, uh, uh, burning in, in, uh, and being tormented in fire. And then the smoke rising forever happens in Revelation 19 in verse 3 when a chorus cries out hallelujah, the smoke from her goes up forever and ever. Exact same Greek phrase, um, to, unto the ages of the ages. But when an angel tells John what all of this symbolism that I just described means, he says in, verse, in chapter 18 verse 21, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. So all of this symbol of this blood drunk vampiric prostitute being tormented in fire and drinking the wine of God's wrath and smoke rising from her forever symbolizes the destruction of the, of the real life city that that woman represents. Hmm. So it's, and in particular, consider this, the, this, the rising smoke imagery. That's very much what we think of when we see a mushroom cloud. It, it communicates utter obliteration. It's what, it's what, um, Abraham saw rising from the plains after God rained down fire onto Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so this symbolism is, is used in this very vision for destruction rather than ongoing torment, even though it's taking place in the imagery 
is ongoing torment. Hmm. Well, so if we just let the scripture interpret itself, then we can, we can see that those symbols are being used together in Revelation 14 to likewise symbolize the destruction of those who follow the beast. Hmm. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I was really interested because, I, I, again, every, everybody I've heard um, that's that's offered rebuttals to to your work, and um, I, I guess I can name one, but James White, I've watched a lot of his rebuttals, and I know we both have a lot of respect for him. In I'm a huge fan, yes. Yeah, in uh, in many many areas. So, what what about this idea that what we're actually saying? So you need to understand what they're saying. What they're actually saying is, if you believe. If you do not believe in conditionalism, if you do not believe that man's continued existence is conditioned upon the continued sus sustaining of his existence by God's power, and so it's conditional upon what God is doing in regards to maintaining or not maintaining the existence of said person, then their argument is that everybody gets eternal life. Everybody gets eternal life. It's just a matter of where you get to do it and what you're going to be doing while you're doing it. So how do you respond to that? How do you respond to the accusation um, that what we really believe is that everybody gets eternal life? Well, you immediately see that that kind of accusation or statement is utilizing different meanings for what eternal life means. Because... We have eternal life right now as believers in Christ, and the un unbelievers do not, but they're still alive, and so are we. So there's obviously a different category, isn't there? John chapter 5, you've passed out of death into life, right? Eternal life is something we possess right now. So is what we possess right now ever going to be given to the unregenerate? Well, of course not. So to say that I believe that they will be given eternal life is to obviously change the meaning of the phraseology to communicate something that misrepresents what I would believe. They're not given eternal life, but they are placed under the judgment of God in the same condition. Well, they're under the judgment of God right now, right? The wrath of God is being revealed. And then the, the Petrine passages that they are kept under punishment until the day of judgment and then at the day of judgment, you have the concept of basanismas, torment. So I'm not in any, so, so there is no meaningful fashion whereby you can describe simply the continued existence in rebellion from separation from absent of the life of God of an image bearer as eternal life. That is, that is using it to mean one thing over here, and then using the exact same phrase over here and playing on those two different contexts in a very invalid way. And I did not appreciate that. Again, I, I don't remember how I first encountered you. Maybe, maybe you're on another podcast or I heard you reference somewhere. Maybe it was through James, James White show. I don't know. Um, but um, I, I really appreciated that you looked at this topic through a scriptural lens, because mm. there are, you know, I mentioned Rob Bell. There are a lot of people who tend to go at this topic from a purely emotional standpoint. They start with what they think God would or would not do, what scripture would or would not say, and then interpret scripture 
through that lens. And I've always appreciated that you do come at this from whether you disagree with you or not. The last thing I could say about Chris date when I look at his stuff is like, Oh, well, he's not using any scripture to back up his points Mm. or he's not studying out what he's saying. Um, And, you know, I definitely encourage people definitely check out uh, the resources that you have available and, and study for themselves. Truth has nowhere to hide, but, but I need to ask you just as we get close to the end of our time here, why, why this topic? Like Mm. what, what makes you passionate about this? Because, you know, in James White's rebuttal, he says, you know, I don't want to be the guy that's the apologist for hell that, you know, I don't want to spend all my time on that topic. Um, And I'm always fascinated when people dial into certain things. Some people dial into creation versus evolution. Some people dial into fill in the blank. So what is it about this topic that you're so passionate about that you've devoted so much time and energy to the topic of hell? Um, I uh, somewhat unexpectedly, perhaps it's actually not the topic that uh, has caused me to spend so much time in it and that um, fuels my passion. It's, it's the way the topic divides Christians. Hmm. Um, What I knew. So, so, you said something really important. You said that um, you've gotten the impression from the materials you've seen me put together that for me, it's, it's all about what scripture says. And that's very true. Um, For me, emotions don't pull me toward conditional immortality or away from eternal torment. It's actually the opposite. My emotions um, ever since I first started looking into this issue seriously, and even to this day, pull me back toward eternal torment. I'm, I'm conservative. I'm reformed. You can imagine I'm an inerrantist. Heck I'm a young earth creationist. And you can imagine how much uh, of an enigma, how much of a pariah even it can make me in the very circles I most identify with simply because I hold this view of hell. And I knew before I accepted this view of hell that that's what would happen. But I I might have underestimated um, just how much it would happen, not just to me, but also to others. And what's happened over the years, as I've convinced other people, is that they've lost um, ministry positions. They've been kicked out of ministries that uh, just recently, and pretty soon, I think we'll be able to announce this publicly, one of the world's most famous and most well-respected apologetics ministries recently changed their um, requirements for staff such that they now have to believe in eternal torment. And a friend of mine had was forced to resign from that wow. ministry because of it. Um, I've known people who have been uh, pastors, ordained ministers in the Presbyterian church. And because they had their mind changed on this topic, they got fired, right? Uh, for, and, and they've been defrocked. My best friend and his wife were kicked out of a church that they felt more love in than they'd been a previous, than they'd experienced at any church prior because they changed their mind on this topic. They were kicked out of it. So what motivates me to spend so much time on this is that, I think it grieves the heart of God that his people are divided over a secondary matter that's not essential to the faith. I think Mm -hmm. it grieves him and it it stymies our effectiveness as the church to bring the gospel to the world when we can't enjoy unity and fellowship and work together based on our shared agreement on the essentials of the faith. Mm -hmm. Um, And instead we tear at each other's throats and divide from one another and kick each other out of each other's churches just because we disagree on the nature of hell. I think that's frankly pathetic and shameful. And I think it grieves God's heart. And so the reason why I am passionate about this and spend so much time in it is I hope to convince people like you and your viewers, although it doesn't sound like you need to be convinced of this anymore, that this isn't an issue worth dividing over. Those of us like me who believe what we do do so because we are committed to the authority, even the inerrancy of scripture, 
And we think that this is the most faithful reading of it. Um, and we, as soon as the church, by and large, um, starts accepting us and treating us like the brothers and sisters in Christ that we are, I probably won't spend nearly as much time on this topic as I have thus far. Um, so, yeah, that's that's the answer to your question. Right. And it's it's amazing. And I and I I didn't I mean, I thought I was thinking about the questions, you know, especially I want to talk about people who um, and the way that people are treated who hold this position. But it really does tie in with a lot of the nature of my show. I know I know you said you're not extremely familiar. I think, you know, some of the tenets of the movement that I'm referring to with the Independent Baptist uh, movement. But it does seem that you know, uh, one of the, one of their big doctrines is the doctrine of separation. It is, it is separating from people who do not agree. Uh, they always use the verse, how can two walk together unless they agree? And they, they use that as their blanket statement for any, for music, for dress, for fill in the blank with all these different things. And I think what you said is very powerful from a church level. And as believers, the fact that we do separate over these at the end of the day, every issue in the Bible is an important issue, but there are secondary issues. And the fact that we would separate from believers who love God, I mean, before you agreed to do the show, you asked me about some of my personal, you know, theological beliefs on, on some of these topics you asked about, you know, my, do you, do you believe in a physical re resurrection of the dead? Do you believe you, you grilled me a little bit with four or five questions <laughs> to say, you know, to, to make sure that, you know, I at least believe orthodox doctrines of the faith, but I love the fact that I can sit here being someone who says, I'm not sure where I stand on this. Um, and I can sit down and talk with you and not be afraid of us. You know, are we going to have to shred each other to pieces before this is over? And I honestly, at the end of the day, I see this happen so much. I, with baptism, with creationism, with all of these different things. And I, I agree with you. I think it, I think it grieves God to see his people, not act like his people to see his people act like enemies of each other. When we're all at the end of the day, all we're all pursuing what we see as the truth and we're all learning and growing and you're wrong about a lot of things and I'm wrong about a lot of things. And we'll all find out that we were wrong about a lot more than we thought we were uh, when getting into true. Twitter debates. <laughs> so, but that's uh, very true. And, and, and just remember how, how, what was at least one of the ways that Jesus said, people the world would know who his disciples are by their love for one another yeah but here we are as the church throwing each other under the bus and tearing each other's throats out just because they think that suffering is going to last uh very briefly as opposed to forever um i think that's how 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 is the how is the church how, how is the world going to know who Jesus' disciples are if that's the way we treat each other and what's more why in the world would they be even attracted to the faith if that's how christians treat each other Right. Something to think about. Right. Yeah, that's that's awesome. And and I again I, I I feel like that falls right into so much of what I try to communicate with the show and um, you know, just speaking with people, the the idea of just loving one another, showing showing kindness to each other and understanding that we're all seeking we're all seeking truth. We're all trying to figure out what the truth is. And um again, I just have to say as we wrap up here, um, I, I appreciate you coming on and I appreciate you uh giving us a lot to think about and, and giving me, um, another perspective. Um, and I, I think that's important. I think, I think when two, two voices can speak and you can, you can sit there and think like, okay, they're saying this, they're saying this, the Bible's, you know, saying this, and we're looking at all these different lenses and trying to figure that out. I, I think it's very important. And I, I think that, um, the emphasis you put on scriptural authority in your work is, is 
again, what draws me to, to what you're doing and whether or not we come to the same conclusions about this topic. I, I really appreciate that work and that, that perspective from you. Well, thank you. That means the world and it's very encouraging. I appreciate it. And I, I periodically do need that encouragement as you might imagine. <laughs> I'm sure I can't, I can't imagine. So, but uh, perfect. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I do want to give um, our listeners obviously a chance to check out your work. So what's maybe one or two of the best places that they can find you. And uh, do you have any, um, I, I know you obviously have a, a book and you know, your resources and you're putting out tons of content all the time, but do you have anything that's coming out soon that anybody should know about or anything that you'd specifically want people to, to take a look at? Well, rethinkinghell.com is going to be the sort of one-stop shop for all the issues related to this topic. Um, we also have a YouTube channel, just search for Rethinking Hell, and we do a live use, uh, a live YouTube stream there once every other week. Um, so that's one collection of resources. As far as things that are upcoming, um, our what I think will be our, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seventh annual conference. We've been having annual conferences ever since 2014. Mm -hmm. Our seventh one is going to be in the Seattle area here in just a couple of months in early November. Um, and if people that are watching the show aren't anywhere near Seattle and can't make it out, but they're interested in attending the conference, there is an online registration option, you know, for live streaming. So if people want to learn more about that, they can go to rethinkinghellconference.com and just to quench any fears that maybe some of your viewers have, this isn't like a conditionalist high five party. Um, <laughs> right. Of the of the four plenary speakers, I'm the only one that holds to this view. The other three are all believers in eternal torment, and they're really big names. Um, Paul Copan, he's an apologist who's done a lot of work on like the Old Testament genocides, as, as they're sometimes called, stuff like that. Um, Clay Jones, who was formerly of Biola University, um, he, he's done a lot of great apologetics work. He will be one of the speakers. And then Tim Barnett of Stand to Reason, which is the ministry um, spearheaded by Greg Kokel down in Southern California. Those, those three speakers all believe in eternal torment, and the four of us are going to be exploring the relationship between apologetics and hell. So mm -hmm. how difficult hell can make evangelism and apologetics will be something that we explore together. So RethinkingHellConference.com, RethinkingHell.com, and the Rethinking Hell YouTube channel, I suppose, are the three places that I would point your listeners to. And then lastly, I'll just say, if anybody wants to reach out to me over email, um, provided we can have a friendly uh, discussion, even if we get a little bit heated at times, that's okay. But as long as for the most part, we can keep it fr uh, uh, friendly and brotherly. Um, people are free to email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com. And I'd love to answer any questions that you might have. Perfect. Chris, thanks for coming on the show. And thank you everybody for listening. Be sure to check out all of those links in the show notes. Uh, you're not going to regret checking out what Chris has to share. So, all right, that's it for today's episode. I'll see you guys in the next one. Prescription products require completion of an online medication consultation with an independent healthcare provider through the LifeMD platform and are only available if prescribed. Subscription required. Individual results may vary. Additional restrictions apply at LifeMD.com. Read all warnings before using GLP-1s. Side effects may include a risk of thyroid C-cell tumors. Do not use GLP-1s if you or your family have a history of thyroid cancer. If you've struggled for years to lose weight and have given up hope, did you know you can now access GLP-1 prescription medications through LifeMD? LifeMD is now offering eligible patients online access to GLP-1s, the breakthrough prescription medication that can help you lose body fat and weight. Listen to what people are saying. 
You just take your shot. It doesn't feel like you're on a diet. What I wasn't expecting it to do was to shut off the food noise. This was life altering. And if I can do it, I feel like anybody can do it. And here's the best part. Your insurance may cover 100% of the cost of your medication. So go to TryLifeMD.com to have your eligibility checked right now. Get started today at TryLifeMD.com. That's T-R-Y-L-I-F-E-M-D.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.